Welcome to the Retirement Made Easy podcast, a show created to be your go-to source for straightforward retirement advice. Best of all, it is presented in a language that you can understand. Are you ready for some straight talk on retirement planning without all the fluff? Well, you found the right podcast. Here's your host, certified financial planner, Greg Gonzalez. Welcome to another episode of the Retirement Made Easy podcast. I'm Greg Gonzalez, and we are in the holiday season. There is a lot going on in the month of December. I was actually reading an article the other day that said that 40% of the charitable giving for the entire year is done in the last quarter of the year. I totally believe that. But we are very, very busy at my firm at St. Louis Retirement Advisors. We have a lot of people that are, you know, wanting to retire at the end of the year. So we're updating their retirement plans. We have a lot of people doing Roth conversions before the end of the year. We have tax loss harvesting if those exist. Some clients are trying to wait until the end of the year to take their required minimum distributions. Or if they're charitable, they are, you know, maybe maxing out those donor advised funds or taking advantage of a qualified charitable distribution if they're over age 72. If they're looking for tax deductions, maybe they are contributing to a 529 plan or a traditional IRA. So it's a very, very busy time of year, but the holiday season is my favorite time of year. We have a lot to be thankful for. And with that said, I I do want to thank you as, as a listener of the Retirement Made Easy podcast. Thank you for listening. Hopefully you found value in the podcast and please continue to submit your questions. I'd love to, you know, be a blessing to your life and help you in any way I can. Submit your questions, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com at the bottom. You can't miss it. And for those of you that are interested in a 30-minute retirement coaching call, by all means, you can sign up for that on the homepage of the website. I've really enjoyed the conversations that I've had with listeners during these coaching calls uh, so far this year in 2022. Hopefully I can continue those in 2023 as time allows. And these calls have been very, very interesting. And that's one thing that I want to stress about retirement planning is everybody's situation is different. Everybody's retirement dreams, retirement visions are different. And thank goodness, because that's what makes my job so enjoyable and so unique it really kind of keeps me on my feet trying to figure out and and talk to people, what are we trying to solve for here? What does this retirement vision look like? I remember one guy earlier this year, he didn't have a retirement vision, but he was so stunned and almost in a a state of shock. And, And what he kept saying is, is my retirement portfolio, my 401k is down 24%. How do I tell my wife, We lost 24% this year, and we're not going to be able to retire next year like we had planned on it. And my answer to him was, well, let's talk about your retirement plan and let's review that together. And he just kept coming back to, I'm down 24%. I've lost all this money. And quite frankly, he just hadn't taken the time to do the planning that is required when you're trying to retire successfully. And that's what a retirement specialist like myself is there for, to kind of hold your hand and guide you and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I've had many, many listeners that they're selling their primary residence and they're relocating. That's kind of in their retirement plan. And they're going to realize a big gain from the sale of their primary residence. So I wanted to talk about the ins and outs of selling your residence 
and maybe moving in retirement, or for some people, maybe they're downsizing. But whatever the situation, I did want to talk about the ins and outs of the tax implications of selling your primary residence and how those are figured. Some people will have tax implications of of selling their primary residence at a big gain. Other people will not. So we're going to talk about that specifically. I've been getting a lot of questions from listeners about long-term care insurance, so I want to dive into that a little bit more. And what's fun for me is whenever somebody calls or emails and I end up having a a phone conversation with them, I kind of take notes and and write down the questions that they're, you know, most concerned with. So I've got notes of every person I've ever talked to from the podcast, every listener that's ever booked a, a phone meeting, a coaching call with me. So I was kind of reviewing those, you know, those those sheets of paper that I keep in my drawer. And this time around, I'm, I'm not going to divulge their names, but but just rather the questions that they had. And one of the questions that was kind of popular on all the different sheets of paper and all the conversations I remember was Roth conversions, Roth IRAs. Those seem to be a very, very popular topic, especially with taxes that are projected to increase in the future. So we'll end out the show with some of those questions about Roth IRAs. And if there's listeners out there that have questions of of their own that they want to submit, feel free to find me on my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. At the very bottom, you'll see where you can submit your questions. It'll say, ask Greg a question, fill that out, send it in, and I'll help you in any way I can. So let's get into the first question that I I keep getting. It's been over and over again. And it's a fantastic question. I love answering this question. What happens when you sell your primary residence? What are the tax implications? Am I going to owe taxes on the gain or am I not? That's kind of what people want to know, right? I even had one listener said, well, what if I take my gain and I buy a new house, you know, within a, you know, two months, can I carry over that gain? So this is kind of how it works. Let's just say we have your hypothetical married couple out there, John and Mary. Let's say John and Mary bought their home for $300,000 20 years ago, and now it's doubled. It's worth $600,000 today. So they've got a $300,000 gain of that primary residence. They've lived in the home for 20 years, they want to sell, and they're saying, my gosh, we're going to realize a $300,000 capital gain on the sale of our home. So the IRS rules for sale of your primary residence. For a couple married filing jointly, there is a $500,000 capital gain exclusion on the sale of your residence. So in this example, if John and Mary bought the property, their home for $300,000, lived in it 20 years, sold it for $600,000, realized a 300 grand profit, they would pay no taxes up to the first $500,000 of profit. If you're single, the exclusion is $250,000. Now, this only applies to the sale of your primary residence. And the law says that you would have had to have lived in the home full-time two of the past five years. So this is not an investment property where you can do like a 1031 exchange, which is a special law in the tax code where you can essentially carry forward the gains and defer the gains on the sale of an investment property and roll them into a new investment property. We're not talking about that. This is a sale of a primary residence. 
Another listener had a very, very good question. She was under the impression that this was a one-time deal. No, this is actually the sale of your primary residence. As the law states today, technically, you could buy a home every five years and, and cash out the profits and buy another one. And as long as the profits were under that $500,000 of exclusion, then you would pay no taxes on the gain. Now, keep in mind, in the example that I had, John and Mary bought the home for $300,000. I'm assuming they, they did no improvements to the home. They didn't add on a deck. They didn't add on bathrooms or put any improvements, any money into the home. They just, and that's probably highly unlikely. If you do make an improvements, let's say you put on a $30,000 deck onto your home. Well, their cost basis would go from $300,000 to $330,000. So any improvements just add to your, your cost basis. And I had another listener that was very interesting. It's, it's all in how you view this kind of stuff. He said, well, yeah, but if we had a $200,000 profit or a $300,000 profit, if you add up all the property taxes that we paid, you know, during that 20 years that we owned, owned our home, it was pretty much a wash. There was no gain. And yeah, he, he might have a point there, you know, for some people, property taxes may be tax deductible if they itemize. So there's some tax considerations there. But again, primary residence for a couple that is married filing jointly, you would have had to live in, in the home full time two of the past five years. And then you can sell your primary residence with up to a $500,000 capital gain exclusion. If you need more information on this, of course, consult your tax advisor, but that's essentially how the law works. Like I said, so many people are selling their primary residence, either moving, downsizing, and maybe they're moving closer to family, kids, grandkids, brothers, sisters, that kind of thing. Maybe they're moving to Florida, somewhere warmer. So this is really, really good to know. Good stuff to know. I've had some people that sell their primary residence and they move someplace cheaper. Let's say they sell their home for $700,000 and then they buy a home for $400,000. And then now they've got that $300,000 of cash. And then, then they figure out a way to invest that. And that's a big decision. What do they do with that $300,000 of capital? And how does it play into their retirement plan? So let's switch gears now and talk about a popular topic. I get a lot of questions, a lot, a lot of questions from listeners about long-term care insurance. This is a very, very popular topic. You've even got the state of Washington requiring people to purchase long-term care insurance through their employer. And the only way you can get out of that is if you already have long-term care insurance outside of your group long-term care coverage. It will be really interesting to see if more states follow the same trend. I hope not, but that's a whole nother story for another podcast. But, but as far as the questions we're getting, as far as long-term care insurance goes, let's talk about the basics first. There's traditional long-term care insurance, which means you're paying into a policy, sort of like homeowner's insurance. And with homeowner's insurance, if my house never burns down, if nothing ever happens to my house and I don't have a claim... All those premiums that I paid in for my homeowner's insurance, I don't get back. There's no residual value. It's the same thing with traditional long-term care. If you never end up needing the care, if you pass away of natural causes, you had that insurance should you need the long-term care, the assisted living, an in-home nurse, that kind of thing. So it's kind of 
like paying for it, trying to insure for a risk that may or may not come to fruition. Nobody has a crystal ball, so we buy the insurance to help insure against that risk. The thing I don't like about traditional long-term care insurance is the insurance company has the ability to raise your premiums in the future. At any time, they can come to you and say, hey, we're increasing your premium, and it is now X. Well, if my homeowner's insurance did that to me, that's not a problem. I would just go to another homeowner's insurance company, another insurance company, and see what they can offer me as far as homeowner's insurance coverage and what their premiums might be. I would just shop around, right? But in the long-term care market, there are so few insurance companies offering long-term care, that might not be a viable option for you. And let's say you bought the insurance policy when you're 60 and the insurance company started raising the premiums big time when you were 80. Well, at 80, you, you're probably not going to qualify for coverage for long-term care insurance for any of the other competing carriers. And you might just be stuck with that same policy. You might not be able to move. So that's one thing that I don't like about traditional long-term care insurance. As far as buying a policy, you are essentially paying a premium for a policy that says if someone cannot do two of the six activities of day daily living, this policy will start to pay out after an elimination period is over with. Typically, that's 90 days. So you're on the hook for the first 90 days of expenses before the insurance policy actually kicks in. That's kind of like the deductible on a auto insurance, for example, or a homeowner's insurance deductible. And then your policy will pay out X amount of dollars over a certain amount of time. The old policies used to pay for out for your lifetime. Now, typically, you see them pay out for three, five, or seven years. The good thing is when they're paying out, it's completely tax-free. The benefits that are paid out are, are totally tax-free to you. In some states, uh, part of the premium may be tax-deductible at the state level. So check with that with your state. So talk to your tax advisor about that. And there's also a lot of people out there that say, well, I hate to pay into something for all these years. And if I don't end up using it, well, there's nothing left over for my spouse or for my kids or heirs or loved ones. So those people will do one of two things. They will either self-insure, right? They will take that risk on themselves. And maybe they have a separate account, like a non-retirement account, trust account, that they've built up funds that are earmarked for their later expenses should they need them, their long-term care expenses. It might be part of a HSA is earmarked for those expenses later on in life. And other people will say, well, you know what? If I'm going to pay in for this long-term care policy, if I don't end up needing the care, at least I want a death benefit where I can have something left over for my spouse and or loved ones. So that's what's called a hybrid long-term care insurance policy. So it's combining a long-term care policy with an insurance policy, life insurance policy, and it's really just a long-term care rider. And there's a lot of those out there. There's even some that you pay in all this money into it, and you can actually get your money back out should you change your mind or want to exit the policy after a certain amount of time. So those are becoming more and more popular. One last thing, circling back to the traditional long-term care, you can often get a discount if both spouses apply for long-term care insurance together. And if they get approved together, a bigger discount. So if you're looking at your retirement plan, 
those expenses, those premiums for the long-term care insurance, if, if you choose to go that route, they need to be inserted into your retirement plan and accounted for because you got to plan on making those premiums for either a limited pay for a certain amount of time or for the rest of your life. I will say this, I'll just leave it at this. The more competitors you have in any environment, the more choices and options, the lower the premiums are going to be. Well, since there's very few insurance companies that want to operate in the long-term care space, there's not a lot of competition, so they can kind of name their price. And that's why it's so expensive is you don't have a lot of competition. My best advice with long-term care insurance is figure out if it's right for you and take your time. Run a lot of illustrations with a fiduciary financial planner, one who's not affiliated with any insurance company because there's a conflict of interest there. And what I mean by that is you want to find someone who doesn't work for an insurance company and represent the insurance company. You want to find someone who works for you. So I know that was quick, but those are some tips that I think can help you plan for long-term care insurance. Again, you know where to find me if you have further questions, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. Before we go today, I want to wrap up with Roth IRAs, Roth 401ks. They are such a hot topic. And I was at a conference of financial advisors over the summer, and there were thousands of financial advisors in this room. And the speaker asked a simple question, who thinks taxes are going to be higher in the future? And every single hand in the audience went up. And mine was one of them. We are $31 trillion in debt as a country. We are under the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Tax rates are very, very low, historically speaking. This new administration, the Biden administration, has been talking about raising taxes. They have not been shy about it. They want to see taxes going up. And yet we continue to add more debt and more debt and more debt. So I really think it's inevitable. This is my opinion for what it's worth that taxes have one way to go. Again, a lot of ad financial advisors out there agree with me and, and probably you as well, but taxes are likely gonna be higher in the future. So what can we do? Well, Roth IRAs are such a popular topic because it's the one way where you can put money into a tax-free Roth IRA. You're paying the taxes on it now, putting the money in the Roth, and then it can grow tax-free for the rest of your life, and it can even pass tax-free to your spouse, to your children, to your loved ones, whoever it is. But the thing about the Roth IRAs, to contribute money to the Roth IRA, you need earned income. If you're over 50, next year they bumped up the limit. Over 50 in 2023, you can contribute up to $7,500. Let's imagine someone works part-time in retirement, makes $15,000 a year working part-time at Costco. Well, this person can contribute $7,500 next year to his or her Roth IRA and to their spouse's Roth IRA as well. The key is you have to have earned income from, you know, W-2 from working, right? So I have had so many people say, well, I have pension income. I have social security income. I have dividend income. I have rental income. Unfortunately, none of those are earned income. Again, it, this can just be a part-time job. It can be full-time employment. The key is it, it has to be income from working. 
The other way, I guess technically somebody could put money, add money to their Roth IRA is they can do a Roth conversion. And what this means, it's very simple. It's saying, okay, I have money in a traditional IRA, pre-tax, and I'm going to pay the taxes on a portion of it or all of it. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing, but a portion of it, pay the taxes on it today, bite the bullet, and then the money moves to your Roth IRA where it can grow tax-free forever. Now you have the choice. You can withhold money for taxes or you can not. You can pay the taxes out of pocket. That's totally up to you. You have that choice. Now the big opportunity with these Roth conversions is when does it make sense to do a Roth conversion and pay the taxes? And then how much do you do? How much of a conversion do you do? If you Obviously, if you do too much, it might push you into a higher tax bracket and you may end up paying more taxes on your Roth IRA conversion than you had really intended. So you want to be careful there. And one listener that I was talking to of the podcast said, well, I'd like to have everything in a Roth IRA. And for me personally, I would not want to have everything in a Roth IRA. If you're curious, check out episode number 118. I talk about the three types of accounts that you can use for retirement for the most tax-efficient retirement. But essentially why I have this opinion is because in, in retirement, in an ideal situation, you would be able to pull income out of an IRA and it to be taxed very, very little, if any, in addition to your Social Security, and then the rest you could withdraw from a non-retirement, like a brokerage account, as well as a Roth IRA, and your taxes would be virtually mitigated. And the benefit there, of course, is having an IRA or a pre-tax bucket, maybe from your 401k, where while you were working, you were in the 22% or 24%, and you got the tax deduction at 22 or 24%, and then now ideally you're in retirement and you're paying virtually zero taxes on that tax deferred money. The other thing that I want to mention about Roth IRAs specifically is there's no age cutoff. As long as you have earned income, you can contribute. You can still contribute. You could be 80 years old and still working and contribute to a Roth IRA. Now there are income caps, cutoffs, where if you make a certain amount of money, the IRS says you make too much to contribute to a Roth IRA and you're, you're not allowed. You might be able to do a backdoor Roth IRA, but, but that's a conversation for another day. Versus a Roth 401k through your employer, there's no income caps to that. You can contribute, you can make as, as much money as you want and contribute to a Roth 401k through your employer. They don't limit you based on your income, but they do limit you based on your age. Last thing I want to mention about Roth IRAs is talk to your kids, talk to your grandkids about Roth IRAs. I encourage you, I challenge you, teach them. They will love you for it and you'll be doing a great, great thing because these younger generations, they've got the one thing on their side that, that we can't compete with. They have time. And whenever you have time and you have all those years of compounding growth tax-free in a Roth IRA, a lot of us just can't compete with that because compounding interest over a long period of time is a beautiful thing. And when it's tax-free inside of a Roth IRA, it just can't be beat. I hope this episode of the Retirement Made Easy podcast has been helpful. Check out my website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. I'll see you next week. And remember, always dream big.
The opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, please consult your attorney, tax advisor, or financial advisor prior to investing. This is a hypothetical example and is not representative of any specific investment. Your results may vary. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices mentioned are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. The SmartVestor program is a directory of investment professionals. Neither Dave Ramsey nor SmartVestor are affiliates of St. Louis Retirement Advisors or LPL Financial. There is no guarantee that a diversified portfolio will enhance overall returns or outperform a non-diversified portfolio. Diversification does not protect against market risk. All investing involves risk, including loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, Memra FINRA, SIPC. Thank you for listening to the show today. Check us out at our website, retirementmadeeasypodcast.com. And if you want some help from Greg, submit your questions at the bottom of the page or sign up for a 30-minute retirement coaching session with Greg. We'll see you next week.